no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. It is Wednesday, November 10th. And at the time of this taping, I am in the background watching Kyle Rittenhouse sit on the stand defending in defense uh, (laughs) of the murders that uh, he is being tried for right now. I can't help but comment on a couple of things I noticed in his, his defense as his defense attorney questions him. Um, one thing that stood out to me was just how much of the information that uh, er- that, that, that he used as the motivation to go to what he called riots was being fed to him on places like Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter, as he says, Facebook Lives. And of course, you know, this this trial is up against a time period when the insurrectionists, the January 6th hearings are being held as Donald Trump's inner circle is being asked to testify before Congress, as people are being subpoenaed, uh, as of course the the face of the insurrectionist movement is now going to be put in prison. Um, all of this is happening in juxtaposition to another conversation about big tech and the role big tech has played in in artificially boosting the right while suppressing the left. And I can't help, you know, listening to this testimony of this kid, because he was he was a kid when this happened, and think, this is a cult. This is how you indoctrinate people. But the difference between the indoctrination done by a, you know, a Jones or a David Koresh or a Scientologist or or the Christian faith, uh, or 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 you name your favorite uh, organized group that preys on young people, ISIS. The difference is, is that this is being aided and abetted by the U.S. government, in his case in particular, and and the January 6th riots, and big tech. And I know that we are concerned, but I believe that the language that we are using is not clear enough. These are not random people in your town that have gone too far down a rabbit hole uh, and gone into Q blogs. It is not just that. This is an organized structure that the government is just looking the other way. And in some cases, in the case of January 6th, and of course the police department in helping, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, supplying him with, with, uh, with, with, with armed vests, you know, arms and, uh, bulletproof vests and information, the government is working directly with these folks. But the strategy of recruiting people into the far right is 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 really about preying on people's insecurities, uh, their vulnerabilities, their lack of power, feeling powerless, and of course, youth. The strategy hasn't changed. The communications tactics and recruitment tactics, they haven't changed. They haven't changed since the earliest of times. The difference is now these tech companies are making it happen at a much faster rate. And as a result, the consequences are far more dangerous. We had the same exact conversation 
10 years ago about ISIS when they were organizing online. However, when it happens in our own country and we have an actual coup attempt, an actual coup attempt, we have open investigations where it is now proven that within our own police departments, we have organized white supremacy. When there are leaked documents online showing that 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 tech CEOs and heads and 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 these documents show that they're fully aware of these problems and yet still do nothing. Why don't they do nothing? Because we have we have congressmen like Paul Gosser, who is from Arizona, who is posting on a tech platform on Twitter a video, an anime video of him murdering Representative Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Now, if by the way, the tech, Twitter did not take down that video. They issued a warning above that video. Oh, that makes it better. That makes it better. Is that what they did with ISIS? Hmm, interesting. I don't think that is. Is that what they did with Cancel Sam? Remember him? Of course you do. He hasn't been on Twitter in over a year. Because what? Because he said certain, th- he made a joke about, uh, about the Republican strategy in Florida during coronavirus and that they might lose an election because, because they're, the Republicans are killing their own people. Sure. I, 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 I'm pretty sure I heard a lot of people say that afterwards, but he is off Twitter, but representative Gosar's video remains. And how long did it take for president Trump, obviously until he left the presidency to be suspended from Twitter? How dangerous does it have to get? I mean, does it get any worse than an attempted coup where they planned on assassinating the vice president and many other members of Congress, who, by the way, was on their side? An attempted coup that was orchestrated and organized in in conjunction with sitting members of office? That is exactly how a coup works, by the way. Go look it up. It's not like it always comes from the outside. It's in partnership with the inside. And Nancy Pelosi, I'm glad you're speaking out against Gosar, but you know, holding him in holding him accountable is it has to go much, much further than an ethics investigation. It's where things go to die. Send it to a committee and it goes to die there. She called for him to step down. I mean, they've done that. Republicans do it all the time. Our strategies have to change. And that is the theme of this show because this is something much, much bigger than a small group of people. This is a cult that is literally taking over our country. It is a white supremacist cult, whether they're conscious of it or not, whether Aaron, Aaron Edward, whatever the guy's name is, uh, the, 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 the football player, um, whether he knows he is working with the white supremacists or not, that's how cults work. Aaron Rodgers, whether Aaron Rodgers knows his listening to Joe Rogan for uh, medical advice is a slow ease in, whether he goes all the way or not, we don't know. But whether it's working with those people on the outside, you're still working with them. And that makes the cult stronger. And I'd say the same thing about Spotify. You know, Spotify, I'm sure, does not condone Joe Rogers, uh, Joe, Joe Rogan's uh, views on, on vaccines, but they're still working with them. They're still paying him money, still giving him a platform. As far as we know, they haven't told him to, to stop talking about that. As far as they know, 
uh, we know there's no editorial standards over there, even though it's the largest podcast platform on the planet. You know, we complain about the New York Times and Washington Post all day long and MSNBC and CNN. They still have some semblance of an editorial oversight. And yet, folks who come to the def- to, to go out against uh, mainstream PD- media, in many cases, rightfully so, are defending Joe Rogan and others on, on under free speech. Like there's absolute free speech in this country. There's no absolute free speech in any country, by the way. We have the closest thing to it. So where do we go from here? I believe that the strategy has to change. Uh, I think that 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 the internet has also made it feel like the left is doing more when they shout online. But is that actually attacking power structures? That's how they're thinking. They're thinking inside and outside. The power structures for them are the tech companies and the police department and a few members of Congress inside helping folks rush in. That's going to the power structures. So I'm hoping all of you uh, will take this moment to think as deeply as we should be. And, uh, and as we talk through the show today, that's sort of the theme of the show, is what can we do? How can we flip the script a bit? We have a great show today. We'll be right back after this short little break. I'm neither an economist or a scholar. I'm just an average American who lost my home and very nearly my family to foreclosure when the market imploded. And I've spent almost every day since trying to find out why. Once the dust settled, it quickly became clear that my story was no different than millions of other Americans. We all thought that we were alone. We all thought that we'd failed. But none of us really knew why. With a gun in her hand, Addie Polk apparently shot herself in the chest as deputies were knocking on her door with eviction papers in hand. This dramatic increase in mortgage fraud cases was the canary in the mine. It was the warning. This was money chasing people. This was not somebody looking for a loan. It was all designed to maximize profits for all of the different players. The person who sold you a loan made more money if they sold you a higher rate loan. They were sold a lot. They're selling to their very clients these loans that they know are a disaster. I lost my home, not because of money, because of fraud. I don't believe Addie Pope took out the mortgage on her home. I don't believe she signed any documents. They just generated all this junk, took home huge bonuses, and then when it collapsed, they said, oh, not us. This notion that the financial crisis was, there wasn't fraud and there wasn't crime, is absolutely wrong. It's dead. They were targeting, in many cases, minorities. We were waiting for the leadership to say, go. That never happened. The investigation was suppressed. This was all part of the same puzzle that was falling apart. This is the largest conspiracy of lies in the history of the world. This investigation has just begun. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm excited to have our next guest. He is uh, the director uh, or producer, excuse me, of The Con. It is a film talking about, I don't know, that huge financial crisis that 
uh, basically shaped <laughs> the last 20 years of our lives, last 15. How long has it been now? No, it's been 12 years of our lives, a 2008 financial crisis. But it feels like it was 20 years, partly because it didn't start in 2008. There were roots. And so they examined that. And they explained to us how we got here in such miserable circumstances in which we can't even deal with basic things like climate change and infrastructure. Uh, very excited to have Patrick Lovell join us. Uh, he is the writer and producer of The Con. Welcome to The Mimiki Show. It's so terrific to be here. Thank you so much to talk to you. 20 years. That's what my mind just said. 20 years. Because for my entire adult life, this is, uh, has shaped my life and, and so many others. Um, why, why did you want to take on this big feat? Uh, it's, it's dangerous. Right. Well, well, maybe I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. But uh, yeah, there's more. Look, this this is the story that never ends. And and and, and you set this up perfectly, really, because you know what I continue to find, and I, I see literally everywhere I look, people, particularly in the podcast arena, the independent guys, the comedians turn investigative journalists because mainstream media is dead. You know, from mm -hmm. uh, Joe Rogan and and uh, Russell Brand, whatever their ideological bents may or may not be, people are looking for answers to what they call seminal corruption, right? Mm -hmm. And it's corrupt. It's corrupt. The whole system's corrupt. I mean, it's everybody seems to think that they understand, yeah, the whole system's rigged, the bad guys are getting away with it, but they don't understand who did what, when, and how, and why, and what they got away with, and why isn't it a... Uh, committable crime. Um, and if so, why wasn't it taken care of? So I went through the 2008 great financial crisis. I've been a producer for a long time. I'm an entrepreneur. So um, when I was going through the madness at the time, then I was living the American Dream 101, young family at the time. Um, you know, Basically, everything I had ever tried to aspire to, I was in the midst of. And then all of a sudden, it came crashing down on my head like it did tens of millions of other people. But I'm a curious guy, and I was going through what they called the foreclosure process at the time, and I was dealing one-on-one -on -one with the, what they called servicers. I'd never heard of a servicer before. My understanding of actually taking out a loan was kind of like everybody's metaphor when you look at, uh, you know, now that we're approaching uh, Christmas time, you know, it's a wonderful life uh, <laughs> scenario, right? Where you borrow from a lender, you have a mortgage for, you know, 30, 40 years, you have a job, you move through the system, you raise your family, you hopefully appreciate um, you know, what your interest in that uh, particular real estate is. And, you know, that's how a lot of people grew the American dream over the course of, you know, decades, really, post World War II. But for me, when it all came crashing down, I'm dealing with this like insanity of what I would call the burger flipper mystique. So you have what they were known as servicers that um, were supposedly carrying on very complex financial transactions. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. There were literally tens of thousands of mortgages and these pools of tranches that constituted what they called mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. And so when things fell apart, because everybody was writing bad loans, okay, I think right. everybody knows the, the, the terminology subprime, but it wasn't a subprime crisis. It was called liar's loans. Basically, they created ninja loans, which were called no, no income, no asset. They were giving away houses to people that, you know, for example, we've got evidence of you know, first-generation tomato pickers in California getting $1.2 million houses. In what world does that make sense? Well, it didn't make sense. And I actually didn't understand that at the time. But what I did understand was I was getting played. And I was getting played by somebody on the other line that made no sense whatsoever. 
So I started pulling the threads and I'm like asking questions and I'm like, had no idea what it was going to lead to, but what it led to after 13 years of efforts, quite frankly, I mean, was we uncovered the largest criminal enterprise and cover up in history that has not ended. And finally, people are starting to ask the right questions and we've got the answers. Um, it is interesting. I mean, Occupy Wall Street, uh, as somebody who was involved with Occupy Wall Street and and seeing how nobody was held responsible, criminally responsible on Wall Street for facilitating, orchestrating, designing this, this infrastructure. Um, you know, I think a lot of folks probably you see that disparity and see it, it before before 2008 and before I even occupy. Um, we we looked at Wall Street as as being this like the heroes of the Wolf of Wall Street being that iconic uh, movie that represented the the grotesque aspect of greed in 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 this country and what folks aspire. And I think there's remnants of that still. I mean, you look at, I think a lot of folks in the beginning of Donald Trump's um, appeal were, you know, we too can be that someday. I mean, how many folks would say, I aspire to be Donald Trump? And they thought that he did it honestly, not necessarily understanding that he was just another, he was a product of that system of greed that, uh, you know, we see it now with Elon Musk making hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, excuse me. Um, you know, in 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 like a day, <laughs> which is crazy. Uh, but that is because the, the way that these systems are created and, and um, devised. I was in college in Arizona uh, during the financial crisis, and I remember friends of mine in college, in college, who didn't have you know maybe maybe they were flipping houses, but they were by no means anywhere near qualified to at least buy that first house so that they could buy five or six or seven of them. And of course, we know that so many other folks were doing that in Arizona and and parts of Southern California, all over the country. But like it really had a deep impact um, on those communities. And I just I remember back then being like, how is this possible? <laughs> how are you able to qualify for this? I know you. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. Um, but that that energy, that like feeling, I think sticks with people, and it sticks with people over time. You know, you they tricked us. Uh, they said I could qualify, ruined my life. Now, you know, I went into they, many of them went into bankruptcy, um, and then as a result, you know, the next thirty years of their lives are transformed. Uh, you know, if they're lucky enough to get out of it, it's that's that's wonderful. But most people haven't been able to get out of it. Um, so let's. Let's talk about like where does this start? Well, I, I think you asked all the right pressing questions, but I do want to clarify a few things. So, sure. my journey did start with Occupy Wall Street. So yeah. I was like, okay, what the hell's going on here? And by the way, I went to college at Arizona State. So, oh, funny, U of A. <laughs> there you go. My, my ex wife went to U of A. Oh, look at wow! How can you? I'm surprised you guys get along. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently we didn't in the long run, but I mean, it's, I, I, it's not a funny matter, unfortunately, because of this disaster led to uh, the situation. And look, I got on the road for Occupy Wall Street and mm. my, we made our first documentary, my partner and I called uh, Forward 13. And um, we literally surfed the Occupy wave. Our timing was incredible. We mm. got on the road. We were on the Northwest. We started up in um, Portland and we made our way down the West Coast all the way through the Southwest, to the Midwest, up into the uh, the Rust Belt. And then we literally landed in Oz. You know, D.C. was the Yellow Brick Road. We landed in D.C. and New York City. The day, we started the day Occupy started, and we got to Zuccotti Park the day that the NYPD came down on, on, on it. And so, you know, as I was going through this process, I kept looking around for people like me. 
right? I'm like, where are the, let's call it late 30-somethings, you know, formerly upward mobile kind of people that, um, you know, got hammered in the 2008 great financial crisis. And I was like literally saying, um, you know, quite frankly, naively and uh, to uh, our African-American compatriots in this whole process, you know, I'm like, this is kind of like a civil rights movement for the, the formerly upward mobile middle class. And I, I know that sounds ridiculous, uh, to, especially it did at the time to African-Americans who were like, yeah, welcome to the club, right? The wrong club in this whole situation. But, you know, a lot of people do identify this with greed. But I want to be absolutely clear here. Greed is not illegal. Criminal behavior is illegal. So when you said, how did this happen? Well, it happened because we had quite frankly, three decades before, to your point about the origin story of this whole thing, what we call deregulation, desupervision, and decriminalization. So the 2008 Great Financial Crisis is quite frankly Act 3 of what we call the SNL crisis. That was the savings and loan crisis. Now, when I was going through this whole process, it didn't make sense to me. And I'll never forget, I was channel surfing on a Sunday morning, and I was trying to absorb everything that I could get my hands on. Like I was reading articles by Matt Taibbi at the time in Rolling Stone. And then that led me to many other authors and then other journalists and other, you know, people that were talking. And this is pre uh, Occupy Wall Street. But um, um, Bill Moyers on PBS had a guest on uh, one morning that just opened up the universe to me. His name was Bill Black. Everybody and everything in media made completely zero sense to me. Um, within context to the, the situation I was living, right? I told you a minute ago, I'm like dealing with servicers, you know, these loans, who are they? Why did certain people like you just asked have eight houses? How did a, you know somebody get into a loan like this? Wait a second. Aren't the people that uh, lent us the money on the hook for 40 years, why would they loan to people? That they, there's a whole apparatus that's an inverse perverse of everything we think we are. So a lot of people want to blame greed for one, and then they want to blame capitalism. So I want to be absolutely clear about this, too. Capitalism has a ton of problems, uh, huge problems. Like you said, we can't fix anything because of neoliberalism is really what it is. And capitalism is the so-called function. But here's another thing of clarity, right? Capitalism, by its own definition, requires risk. This didn't have any risk. People who orchestrated it, they were completely insulated. And who am I talking about now, I mean? I'm talking about the CEOs of the financial system of this country. They created what we call a Gresham's dynamic. That's when bad ethics drives out good ethics in the marketplace, but then it leads to criminality. And that criminality, so for example, President Obama was the best cover man in history, ultimately, because what he ended up doing was he gets in front of the cameras on 60 Minutes and he says, look, what Wall Street did was unethical, but it wasn't illegal. Mm. Bullshit. It was completely illegal every step of the way. And guess who should have known if he didn't know? President Obama. He's a constitutional law expert. Like, he doesn't know the difference of deceptive acts and practices and that those are felonies in every single state, not to mention all of what we call the civil rights violations that led to what was supposed to manage this, the Federal Freaking Reserve under what we call HOEPA statutes, Homeowner Equity Protection Act, Federal Reserve fuels lending to our financial system, low interest rates that are supposed to create growth. You know what their mandates are? High employment, low unemployment, low inflation, supposedly. What it's become is a centralized uh, 
bank for the financial system that has what we call a black box casino, where they create all of these different maneuvers within the system to be able to hyperinflate assets that they then in turn now, post-2008 and what we've been living on since 2009, quantitative easing. The Federal Reserve buys back the securities that these criminal institutions create in their criminal hocus pocus, and it's all laid out in the con, through five episodes, every single ingredient from liar's loans uh, to brokerage fraud to the deceptive acts and practices as it relates to uh, appraisers that Mm -hmm. were incentivized because they had to get these loans to the highest available to these bad lenders through the underwriting process. So all the checks and balances that lead to credit rating agencies, for example, were completely blown by perverse incentives. That's a criminal syndicate. There was probably literally, no, I mean, tens of millions of felonies that took place in this. And to your point, how much did we give the financial institutions for this great service of destroying the world? We bailed them out. How much? Oh, I have no idea at the end of the day. How, well, how much, for example, do you think our uh, GDP is? Uh, oof. I have no idea. <laughs> don't, don't put me on the spot. <laughs> it's all hocus pocus money after like $1 billion to me. Most people think. Okay, this is important though because you want to fund uh, stuff that makes yeah. sense, right? You probably like myself would like the Green New Deal. You probably want to be able to fund, you know, new jobs guarantee, um, a whole variety of things that create dynamism in the real economy, as opposed to absolute theft for the, the top, you know, one zero 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 one percent. Yeah, and that's what we're talking about here. We literally, okay, so in the aftermath of the two thousand eight great financial crisis. The big story was Congress coming together to create what we call TARP, the Troubles Assets Relief Program. That was $700 billion, of which $50 billion was supposed to go to HAMP, the Home um, uh, you know, Modification Program, right? So very similar to what's happened now, by the way, with rental eviction relief, yep. post CARES Act. So that was all $750 billion. Wall Street in 2009 got, hold on to your seats. What, what do you think would be a big a big number? Just just postulate. Bailout? I mean, uh, definitely more than the infrastructure bill. So let's say $5 trillion. It was $29 trillion, most likely $33 trillion, but it was $29 trillion at the very least. The Federal Reserve publicly has said it's been $22 trillion. It was $29 trillion to bail out this mammoth criminal enterprise. That was in 2009. We've since done about another 20 to 30 trillion since 2019 mm-hmm. as a result of the CARES Act and many of the other things that happened with repo, repo lending. And I mean, it's, it's insane. And what has this money gone to? What has the money gone to? Has it gone to recontextualize the entire world? Has it gone to recreate the energy paradigm? Has it gone to recreate education? Has it gone to recreate, you know, maybe uh, a cleanse of the judiciary? All sorts of things. No. It went to the guys that blew up the freaking world. And guess so, what they're doing now? They're they're building rocket ships to space. <laughs> well, I'm not blaming this on I'm not blaming this. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not blaming this on, on, on Jeff Bezos and we can't blame this on uh, on Elon Musk. We're talking Jamie Dimon, we're talking yes, yes, Frank Fine, we're talking this, this is the financial stuff. The financial guys, industry. I'm just I'm getting it. But, 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 but those guys are those guys are beneficiaries of this whole thing. There's no of course. Question. there's control fraud going on in those businesses as well. The, the, the place you really want to focus on is BlackRock. There's a gentleman, that you, the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink. He's been there every step of the way, right? 
he's a vulture capitalist, basically. Right. And that's what leads to private equity and all sorts of other hocus pocus hedge fund crap, but in, in asset managers. But just the final lesson to this, this point, that guy was the recipient of the resolution trust funds to rebuild after the savings and loan crisis. And as it turns out, Larry Fink was the administrator of what we call Maiden Lane, which happened in 2007, which basically was the precursor to this $29 trillion theft. Why do you think BlackRock is the most powerful country, company in the world? I was about to say country, because they own the world. They literally have the largest percentage. And so the last point I'll say on that front is that the reason that the con isn't on Netflix or HBO or any of those others is because we expose the people uh, or the institutions that are literally on the board of directors and finance all of all of these things. They, they don't want this truth made. And so everybody's spinning around in circles trying to figure out what the hell is going on. We put it in the con. So hopefully everybody will check it out. I mean, it is. It's 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 well, it's monopoly land. I mean, we we have these frustrations uh, with our platforms, knowing that every I'm also a documentary filmmaker and on, on our documentary advisory board um, for the film that I'm working on, I've heard from multiple filmmakers recently who are Oscar nominated and Oscar award winning that they're having a difficult time getting their next piece out because of this consolidation in the media that is intertwined with finance is intertwined with with other interests that don't of course want to see uh films getting you know they, they like to see the, the 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 fun stuff the sexy stuff but not the uh the stuff that gets to the heart of the issues which is the art of documentary documentary filmmaking in my opinion um before we wrap okay so uh where do we see this going? Um, we have about two minutes left. Just, just a heads up. What is the new model of this, especially in light of, well, of this financial crisis right, right now? That's a fantastic question. So, well, you're, you're talking about the economy in general. You're talking about the the, the, the focus of our film and what we're the, doing. the way um, the way that they these these vulture capitalists, BlackRock, etc., are able to seize crises and take advantage of whether they're part of it or not distress we know what people do with distressed properties etc but how are they going to take advantage of this financial crisis that we're in right now beyond what they've already been doing they short the market they do every variation to be able to do whatever they want to be able to smash and grab i mean it's really just like next level you know third generation of what the east india trading company was doing yeah. with uh, globalism or i should say you know imperialism from the beginning right i mean this is what they do so like just a, a quick history lesson in the 1700s, the reason why we had all these revolutions was because the monarchies through the East India Trading Company would go in and monopolize land where they get the mineral rights, and then they get the guys that are corrupt, the owners, to basically trade in their currency, and then they can't anymore, and then they bankrupt them, and so then they control all the land and the profiteering. That's imperialism. So this is just a new version of that. And so it is the new aristocracy, and we all – the new robber barons, quite frankly, and the con can be seen using the tools of this information – uh, that are out there, but we had to self-distribute because none of these platforms would put us on like Netflix or HBO, unfortunately. And, you know, the, the likes of like Oprah Winfrey, no ex I don't know if they know that Obama is up to his ears in corruption, but it's really interesting to see somebody, you know, who's the mainstay of like, hey, let's let's celebrate the little guy is the guy that's keeping the little guy down. That's our media today. That's how the whole thing works. And so we're self-distribution. We're on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, all the big guys. But I mean, literally all the big guys. But at least it's self-distribution. Yeah. You can get it out there. But what we're also doing, and I encourage everybody to check me out on Facebook, Twitter, you name it. We're doing these organic screenings with different groups all over the country because I'm trying to break through the silos. 
because everybody operates in these verticals where it's like, okay, here's my, my, my project because that's what I can fund. Meanwhile, just like in the great populism era, after the heel, uh, after the, um, the, the robber barons, they went after corruption. That's what we have to do. We have to purge corruption from our system before it destroys us all. And it will, because that's how it operates. Yep. Patrick Lovell, super interesting. Uh, go check out the con. We, uh, we, we played the trailer at the beginning of this interview. We'll have all the information uh, in the bio section here so, so people can check it out. Keep it up. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience. It's so nice to connect with you. Sunset Lake CBD is that magical farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has all sorts of products for everybody, whether it's coffee or salves or gummies or tinctures, and they're all designed to help you with your aches and pains. They're originally a farm. They like changed and diversified a farm in Vermont that was a Ben and Jerry's farm. Uh, They are doing the great work of improving their community through sustainable agriculture and providing meaningful employment, employment, enhancing the rural economy of Vermont. They pay their workers a $15 minimum wage and their workers own the majority of their company. And then on top of all that, they are supportive of independent media like our show, The Nomi Key Show, The Majority Report, and The David Pakman Show. Um, they, I, I mean, we talk about their products all the time. I now have those little rolled joints, CBD joints, uh, which help me when I get my migraines, which I had one the other day and I, I woke up with it and I took a little bit of that and it cured it. It was amazing. And it calms you down at the same time without making you a little high like other things do. Um, I work with all the sorts of products. I have this amazing lotion now that has, has CBD and hemp and it's, I put it on my back when I have sore back. It's a real quality product. You know I talk about it all the time. I have tried CBD at other places. It does not have the same effect. Sunset Lake CBD is really the best CBD I've ever had. And it prevents me from doing other things because it's so effective and I can still work throughout the day um, having used their products. It also helps me sleep. You, if you haven't tried it yet, you can get 20% off of your entire order. If you go to sunsetlakecbd.com, and type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, you go to sunsetlakecbd.com, type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. There's a new tincture out right now. It has 1,200 milligrams of CBD oil infused with 90 milligrams of melatonin. It helps you get to sleep and stay asleep. That's the combination. It's really effective, especially if you're like me, I can't sleep at night. So I definitely recommend you go check that out. That is out as right now. It's a new product. Yeah, it's out on the market. All right. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Do you guys know that there's an election next year? Oh my God. Time goes by so fast. Uh, we just finished one. It feels like we just finished one before that. And we're going into midterms already. And we're hoping, hoping that we as progressives can make more progress, uh, even when Democrats sometimes make the wrong decisions and get shellacked. That's how it's worked in the last you know, couple of cycles. I think we have a lot of, of potential this cycle. So what we're going to do, uh, as we normally do, is feature dynamic candidates uh, on the show, do you know, interviews with them so that you can get in and support them early. Because supporting candidates early is vital. You all know our work at Matriarch. We support candidates early. We offer them pro bono services 
uh, so that they don't have to pay up front a bunch of fees to consultants. We have a great team of advisors who give advice and support and structure to candidates so that they can be viable earlier and use that money to run and win the election. Uh, sometimes that money comes in very late, and by then, you know, there's been a lot of ground loss. So support candidates early. That is the lesson of the day. It is November 10th. We have about a year to go uh, until the general election, but I want to focus in on an area of New York City called Staten Island. Staten Island is, you may have heard, is where there's a lot of organizing happening right now around Amazon. We've had Chris Smalls on the show. Uh, Staten Island has traditionally been pretty conservative, but it had a Democratic uh, con- congressional member uh, last cycle who was defeated, um, you know, just just over a year ago. Well, Democrats are hoping to win back that seat and changing it up a little bit. We are very excited to have Brittany Ramos de Barros on, who's running in New York's 11th congressional district. Brittany, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Very so okay. So you are an Afro-Latina Staten Islander, you're a community organizer, but you're also a combat veteran who's progressive. This is something I think sometimes people can't necessarily hold in their mind at the same time. So yeah. how did that happen? <laughs> Good question. Um, yeah, I, it is true. It's Especially once I moved to the coast, to the Northeast, I realized how much of a disconnect there was in a lot of our movement spaces with what's going on with veterans and military community. Um, and for me, you know, the way that that happened is a long story. The short version, shortish version is that I grew up in a in a conservative military family in Texas. And, you know, I think that the beauty of that was this, you know, my parents really instilled in me this love for the values that America is supposed to be about, right? These ideas of justice and opportunity and fairness. Um, and yet being biracial, I could look around with my own eyes, even at a young age and see that the America that my white family was living in was not the same as the America that my black and Puerto Rican family was living in. Um, and I also, you know, learned this bootstrap narrative, right? That if anyone works hard enough that they can make it, but I watched my parents work incredibly hard, work multiple jobs, like families all around us. And we still were struggling to keep our housing, to keep food on the table, um, and I knew something didn't add up, but ultimately I still ended up going to school on an army scholarship. Hmm. Um, and where, you know, and in college, like a lot of folks, my my politics and worldview started to really expand. I had done competitive debate in high school and that had started to really open up my thinking. Um, but when I graduated in 2011 and commissioned as an officer, I still had this really limited understanding of what was happening systemically, right? Hmm. I was like, okay, there are some problems with our military um, but I didn't have a structural understanding of how corporations have controlled our politics and controlled those decisions, right? And the way that the military is being used as a, a tool uh, for profiteering all over the world. And so I, my solution in my mind was like, we just need better leaders, right? Who are going to make better decisions. It's as simple as that. And I was a true believer still when I deployed to Afghanistan, thinking I was going to go help protect Afghan people um, and fight for democracy. Um, but when I deployed, it was impossible for me to see once I was on the, for me to not see once I was on the ground that we were so obviously doing so much more harm than good to the Afghan people that I really believed I was there to help protect. Um, and I could also see the way that corporations were really running the show. I saw that, you know, I was a maintenance platoon leader and I had an, I had a 40 person platoon of mechanics who knew how to fix every piece of equipment. 
um, that we had at our disposal. And one example is that I sat, we sat for a week dead in the water uh, once when our, our, uh, one of our trucks broke down. And that's because we had all of the equipment we needed to fix it. We had all of the knowledge, uh, you know, amongst my platoon members that was needed to fix it. And there was a contractual requirement that only corporate mechanics were allowed to work on those vehicles that was built into that contract, right? That Congress approves. Um, And so that's just one example, right, of the way that it became so obvious to me at that baseline level that not only was this, this profiteering a problem on its face, right? A moral question, a corruption question, right? But it was also hurting our so-called national security that we were there to, right? Like we're, it's actually hurting our effectiveness and our readiness. And I came home and struggled to make sense of that. I got involved in economic justice and racial justice work. um, And and I, you know, I would talk about the wars. Why are these so quiet? This is really, you know, we need to be talking about this more. It's horrible that this is still going on. but I never really connected the dots until it sounds a little cheesy, but Colin Kaepernick took a knee and I saw yeah. people. Listen, why is that cheesy at all? That's... Because I literally like wrote a Facebook post. I wrote like a passionate Facebook post and was like, here are my arguments for why. And I was like, if people but just. This is how it's stu- I mean, this is, <laughs> we all have, I mean, all of us have these moments that bring us in and, yeah. and, and that's the importance and significance of, you know, people can make fun of, of celebrities doing these things, but it, it, when you have a celebrity do something like that, it relates to everyday people who that might be their entrance point into activism because something clicks. Right. And for me, it wasn't just that he, he took this stand. It was the backlash, right? Yeah. That the backlash was made to be about the flag and about veterans like yes, me, right? right? And before that, I hadn't really gone around talking that much about being a veteran, even though I was doing this economic and racial justice work. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that moment, it hit me like lightning that like, if we don't address this empty plastic patriotism that so many of us are knee jerk conditioned into this, this nationalism, right. Which is a bigotry. Um, then we're never actually going to be able to achieve the things around gender justice, environmental justice, racial justice that we hope to achieve because it's used as such a weapon to, uh, you know, to and, and bludgeon against our other efforts. So Brittany, are you active duty still? Like are, are, you went to, you're not. Okay. So you went to Afghanistan. Did you go back? Like, what was your, what were the last few years like? Yeah. So when I came back from Afghanistan, I knew that I wasn't proud of what I had participated in. I didn't feel like I had made Americans or Afghans safer or any better off. Um, And I felt really conflicted by that. But it took me a long time to kind of learn, you know, start digging into what was actually going on. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a lot to learn. And in the meantime, I was still in the reserves. So Mm -hmm. I continued my reserve, my service in the, in the army reserves. And that's partially because I always make a point to mention that when we give military scholarships, we have 17, 18 year olds signing contracts that they won't be free of until they're 30. Right. Like that's great. You don't think, I want people to think about that, right? Your brain. 18-year-olds' brains are not even fully formed, um, but we have them signing 12-year contracts, life-or-death contracts with the with the federal government in order to access college, in order to access health care and a job, a good job, right? And so a good job in terms of pay and benefits, right? And so, Supposedly. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so, you know, for me, I after that kind of lightning moment of, oh, wow, I, I went looking and I found other veterans who were doing anti-war advocacy and, you know, using their voices as veterans in support of 
um, social justice issues. I joined About Face, Veterans Against the War. I jumped in with both feet. And then I realized I was still under contract, but I realized I couldn't keep kind of going along with the lie. I realized I had these 18, 19 year old troops being assigned to my command. And I thought, you know, the army values are things like integrity, selfless service, personal courage. And I was like, if I am participating in this lie, they're coming to me saying, I can't wait to deploy. And they have no real concept of what they're going to be participating in. Right. And I thought I can't look myself in the mirror and think that I have any integrity as a leader if mm-hmm. I don't act if I participate in this even if it's through my silence, right? Because I'm literally directly responsible for troops as an officer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started speaking out, and I didn't, you know, I didn't share any state secrets. I just started, you know, the next time I was on orders, I posted, I, I uh, planned out a social media campaign that would post on my social media while I was gone. One fact every day. And they're basic things like the DOD is burning 10.3 million gallons of oil per day. Um, We are bombing seven plus countries on any given day, which a lot of people don't know. Right. Um, And, um, you know, within a few days I was doxxed. I was, you know, on the front page of the Army Times um, as Army officer goes on anti-military tirade. I was I found out in that Army Times article that I was under investigation. I was later investigated as an insider threat by the Army Counter Intel Unit and threatened with court-martial, which is criminal charges in the military system. Um, and I ended up coming out of it unscathed. They didn't end up filing the charges because I hadn't technically violated any any rules. Well, of- the one thing I've, I'm confused about is I've heard this from, from and I'm not sure what level this applies to, but mm-hmm. isn't it that, that, that if you are in the military, if you're active, you're not allowed to be on social media because it's like a national security threat? No, that's not true. There are restrictions. Um, okay. And so the restrictions for an officer, which I looked into before I did this, right, were um, that you can't, I, you know, back then I couldn't speak publicly against any elected officials or officials appointed above me. So, for example, the Secretary of Defense, right? right? I can't go on Twitter and be like, F this person, like, well, right, like that I could get court-martialed for legally, um, or any, you know, things, thing you can't obviously share things that are classified, right. that are restricted, things like that. Um, and you can't represent yourself at, you know, you can't make kind of partisan endorsements. This is a gray area because the rule or operating rule now is that if you put, I don't represent the DOD in your Twitter bio, that then you're safe and you can say whatever <laughs> you want. But I don't know. It's a weird thing. But th- there's this mis- misconception that as a true you know, that you give up your right to be political. And this is where I think it's important. That is not actually accurate. You do not give up your right to be political. You can't, you cannot make certain partisan statements in an official capacity, right? But there's a difference between partisan statements and political. And I think that's the reason I make this point. I know we're on a little bit of a tangent, but is that, you know, there's this myth that this mil- that the military is this like completely apolitical institution and that we're all supposed to be these kind of just like mindless people who do whatever we're told. And yet at the same time, in officer training, like there's kind of this tendency to like uplift, like, oh, what makes us different is that mm. we don't expect people to be, you know, we have these very clear guidelines that we expect officers to uphold and to follow that are not about individual order following. Right. But there are, there are real limits. And, um, and, you know, I think it's important for folks to know that they actually do have a a voice and a choice. So, so you're in Staten Island now, Staten Island is traditionally fairly conservative in New York. Um, 
uh, but very large labor, uh, you know, membership. There are many people of color in Staten Island. So, you know, I think Democrats have always sort of written it off, but partly because they ignore key constituencies there or let the Republicans sort of, uh, you know, pull them in, um, whether it's firefighters or, or police officers. Um, but, you know, with that being said, it's it's still New York City. And it is, I mean, I've, I've worked in Staten Island here and there, um, done some organizing there and, and campaigning for folks. Oh. And I just find it um, abysmal that Democrats really don't necessarily understand like the core of, 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 of the community. Um, so I'm curious. So, you know, they, their solution last cycle was, was Max Rose, who was in Congress, who was like one of these, uh, you know, white male, kind of boring, not really sure. Like, was he, did he used to be a Republican? Not really sure. That was, you know, their choice for, for Democratic, um, the, the nominee. And of course he was in Congress and then he lost to Representative Nicole Maliotakis. Um, Nicole Maliotakis is a Republican. She's a Trumpster. She's half Cuban, half Greek. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so you're now running against uh, Representative Maliotakis, who is pretty crazy. <laughs> like I could say that. Uh, <laughs> she's 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 not like your traditional New York Republican, you know, the 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 whatever that used to be. Um how's that going? <laughs> Are Democrats seeing you saying, like, oh yes, this is what we should have gone with originally? What's the what's the vibe been with the party? Yeah, I mean the party. I say that in quotations because, like, what Democratic Party does it do? New York does New York have right now? Right. I mean, I think that that is an important distinction. Right? Is there's the party, and then there's the base. Right? There's the actual residents, and you know, I mean, the the party process will be ongoing. What I hope is the takeaway from this last election cycle is that we cannot keep running these same kinds of candidates on these same strategies, right? And these kind of milquetoast platforms um, and expect that we're going to get a different result. Mm -hmm. uh, we will not. I, I, I cannot think that that would be more evident from what, from the, you know, that what we just saw in, in this district and all over the country, you yeah. know, and the, on the positive, on the hopeful side of that is that 22 out of the 33 candidates in this last, in this most immediate last cycle, right, this year that just happened, um, one, who ran on a bold, apologetic for the people platform won, right? And those are in the really, city, in the city. And those are really strong numbers. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, there, I think that Staten Island is really misunderstood by people in the city and be and around the country, but also by people here, right? We've, yeah. a lot of us have internalized this narrative that it's this deep, Republican red district. And yet when you look at the numbers, there are 30,000 more registered Democrats in Staten Island alone than there are Republicans. And wow. in the district at large, when you include Brooklyn, you have almost two to one registered Republicans to registered Democrats, uh, registered Democrats to registered Republicans. And then there's another 150,000 plus potential voters who are unaffiliated, right? Who yeah. are either registered and unaffiliated with a party or not registered at all. And a lot of those folks are the incoming, younger, you know, more diverse communities that have been moving into the district. This is the fastest diversifying district in the, in New York State right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when you look at those things and you pair with that 
uh, the reality that, for example, Bernie Sanders won the Mid Island, South Shore, and the two largest neighborhoods on the Brooklyn side in twenty six in his twenty sixteen primary. Um, what that tells me, along with lived experience here, is that the district is more anti-establishment than it is conservative. And yeah. so when you hold up these establishment candidates, even when they're running on kind of more progressive language, but they don't have the real platform, the real conviction to back that up or the lived experience. Right. Mm-hmm. They, we, we fall flat. We don't energize our own base. And, you know, it's it's beyond just Max Rose. We've had several Democrats in the seat. We've had a new rep in the seat almost every two years for yeah. over a decade, Republicans and Democrats. And the problem is, is that we've always ended up with blue dog Democrats who, you know, will run on on one kind of energizing piece. McMahon, for example, back in the day ran on health care. He got in and then he voted against health care yeah, and he yeah. got rejected. Right. And so you know, when you look at that and you see that Medicare for all, you know, even in districts like this, for example, are like 80 polling at like 80, 88 percent favorable um, amongst residents. There's a real misunderstanding if your takeaway is that what people are hungry for is a kind of more centrist or moderate Democrat. I think in actuality, we haven't had a campaign that was well resourced, well supported, that has run on a on a really unapologetic, uh, inclusive for the people platform like we are. And that's exciting. Yeah. And, and it's clear in, in the mobilizing that's happening, obviously, um, with the union movement and, and the Amazon workers. I mean, it's, it's, it's abundantly yeah. clear that there's a, a, there's a, a starvation for leadership. I mean, there's just a, there's a create, like people, people want that. Um, before we wrap, uh, I know that we don't have the lines yet. And I just want to reinforce that to everybody else is that there's a redistricting process going on and, and, um, these congressional lines will not be decided for for about four more months, probably, or announced three months, whatever it is. Um, but what is your gut? I mean, this is Staten Island will be Staten Island. It's not like they're going to split up. I mean, they could split up Staten Island and make it more conservative, but it's likely not going to go that way because the Democrats yeah. are in the majority and and um, there's a lot of pressure to 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 make. You know, it's just just frankly how redistricting process goes. It's political, even when it's mm-hmm. supposed to be you know not be. Yeah. Um, so does that help you or hurt you? There's, yeah, there's no scenario where redistricting hurts us. There's only, there's, you know, there's, there's four main options that people think are realistic from what we hear. You know, maybe we take a piece of Southern Manhattan. I think that that's extremely unlikely. Maybe we expand South into Coney Island, or maybe we expand further North up into Sunset Park. Um, or maybe for folks who don't know, right. Brooklyn. Yeah. Ex- uh, neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And, or maybe we just kind of like bump out the, the lines are the kind of four major and keep it kind of mostly the same. Cause we only need to gain about 25,000 more voters. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, there's just all of those, all of the uh, kind of reddest parts of Brooklyn are already gerrymandered into our district. Um, so it can only get more progressive. <laughs> it can only, yeah, it can only be good for us. The question is just how much better for us it gets, uh, which is a good position to be in. Brittany Ramos de Barros, um, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have your information up there if people want to check out your campaign. Uh, still early, but yeah. important to jump in early. Uh, best of luck. Absolutely. Lots ahead of you, and we'll be watching very closely. Thank you so much for having me on and for the support. We are going to need all hands on deck. So thanks, everyone, for checking us out. Welcome back to the Nomi He Show. Very excited to have our dear friend Napoleon de Legend join us today for our panel discussion. Uh, Napoleon de Legend is, of course, an Afrobeat hip hop artist, 
We love them. The music of the show is done by Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon, thanks for joining us. Welcome back. Always a pleasure, Nomiki. Always a pleasure being here. So there's some crazy stuff happening right now. I mean, like, I don't even know. I mean, you know how they had those, like, terror scales where it was, like, orange level, red level? I think we should create one for these absolutely out-of-their-mind, batshit, crazy lawmakers and their little, like, ecosystem of insurrectionists. Uh, because, I don't know if you heard, but Republican Congressman Paul Gosar uh, tweeted an anime video of him attacking and killing Democrats, in particular AOC as one of them. And it's just, it's still living there online. Let's, let's, let's roll this clip so you get a better sense of what's happening. Our next story uh, kind of reflects this. Twitter has added a warning label, but says it will not take down a video posted by a Republican congressman, which mm. depicts him killing Democrat uh, AOC. In an, he does it in a cartoon form. The video, which we're not going to show here, was posted by Republican Paul Gosar of Arizona on Twitter and Instagram. In the clip, Gosar's face can be seen superimposed over like an animated character as it kills a monster, which has the face of this congresswoman. I, I can't even believe this is being, this is something I have to report. Well, also, you I know, cannot in, believe in a separate shot, this is a reality. This right. Arizona congressman, Gosar's character, slashes on the face of the president of the United States. I feel uncomfortable even saying you this. Know, so, Elise, Elise, here's the thing. And this sounds so obvious. If anybody had done this when I was in Congress, anybody, we would have called uh, for, to censor this person, mm -hmm. uh, to get them kicked off of the committees, possibly expel them from Congress. I can't even imagine the reaction if the most conservative conservative or the most liberal of liberals had attacked somebody else in the chamber this way. Their career would be over. I mean, just even look at Steve Why King. Twitter like yeah. Steve King got driven out of of, of, of the pol polite society for even what four years ago. That's now nothing compared to this. And what does Kevin McCarthy say? Absolutely nothing. What does Steve Scalise, for God's sake, what does Steve Scalise, a guy that got shot because he knows of how hatred, horrible it is? Has he said anything <sighs> about Gosor? Again. Tweeting images of, of, of him killing other members of Congress and attacking the president of the United States. This is, I, I've never agreed with him so much in my life before, or frankly, ever. Um, it's uncomfortable to even discuss what it is. It's my first reaction was kick him out of Congress. This is something that wouldn't be allowed in any workplace, let alone. In Congress, where you're supposed to have some sort of decorum, at least internally, I guess when you when you're not, you know, face to face with the person, it's easier. It's, it's like this parasocial relationship uh, that they're putting out there. And 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 last, like what 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 she said was, uh, wh why is Twitter allowing this? This is actual hate speech. This is how far this is gone. I mean, I would love to say that this is the worst, but let's remember Marjorie Taylor Greene and many of their uh, their colleagues were part of the insurrection, directly part of the insurrection, where it actually was the goal to murder a lawmaker, their colleague. Napoleon, like, I, I mean, you, you, I feel as if we're in um, 
juxtapose this with Joe Manchin being circled by uh, activists in his Maserati. I mean, you, you, you're, you're, you've, you've traveled the world, you know, history. I feel like this is the moment where the government like completely like, you know, falls apart and, and people rush, rush the stage and take over. Like it's like a military kind of takeover. I, I just don't understand how this can happen. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like we're, we're past like a threshold that that we haven't seen before. And uh, like you said, the quorum is 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 gone. Like ever since you know Trump got in, and the type of things Trump used to say when he used to galvanize crowds to go against um, what's uh, Ilhan Omar and things like that. That was very dangerous. Like the quorum flew out the window, and it's. I keep saying this when I come here. I feel like the lines are blurred between politics and entertainment. Mm. Like, look, I'm an artist. I follow pages on Instagram, like 50 Cent, and all he does is beef and conflict with other people. And he'll do little videos like that. He'll take a movie scene, put his face on it, put the other person's face on it. And it's all entertainment, people laugh and stuff. But real things happen even on, on that domain. And now they're taking this into politics. So how... Are, how can we not take politics like as a joke? Like it's not, it doesn't even seem serious anymore. It's like the rules are gone. It's no holes barred. It's about who's going to do the most sensational thing to go viral. And, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, it's a sign of the times. And, and I, I mean, I don't see how we could come back from it. And like you said, with the insurrection, somebody actually, a cop actually got killed. Like people actually died that day and they're mimicking the same thing. So, and nobody's telling them anything. Well, and, and, and this is, um, let's bring Jordan on real quick. Jordan Zacharin's about to join us. Uh, Jordan Zacharin, of course, uh, regular on the show, more perfect union. Um, uh, the founder of, uh, progressives everywhere newsletter. Uh, Jordan, thanks for joining us. There you are. Hey. We're just talking about the Paul Gosar, um, tweet. I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with it and, and how, there's just a lack of accountability that was once the, I mean, it's not just that these behaviors are utterly outrageous. There's a there's simultaneously a lack of accountability as the behaviors are becoming more and more outrageous, whether it's insurrectionists who had the intent to kill the vice president and Nancy Pelosi and others, um, aided and abetted by <laughs> by the police force and other security and, and of course, seeing members of Congress. Um, but then you have somebody like Paul Gosar, who's inflammatory, but kind of like this, I mean, He's not Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm not saying that that's an exception, but it just shows you how far this has gotten when Republicans who you wouldn't necessarily always, you know, associate with these behaviors, although he's very conservative, let's not deny that, and a Trumpster. Um, but there's no accountability. And and I mean, that's what I was wondering what Joe Scarborough was going to say in that clip because he's a former member of Congress. And I'm glad he said it. He said this would not have flown last, you know, when he was in Congress. It wouldn't have flown four years ago. But there's also no accountability from Twitter. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, like, I think this is, a, like, like Napoleon said, this is a moment. This is an actual moment where we have to stop and let it register what is happening, how serious this is, how bad does it need to get for these companies to be reined in and take this down, and for our leadership, whether it's, it's Chuck Schumer holding mm. Joe Manchin accountable you know he's doing something for that Maserati. We know what it is, um, or or Kevin McCarthy taking this seriously and censoring or, or expelling this Congress member. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, there is no accountability. We, like you said, January 6th, they saw these commissions and we're still waiting, I guess, for Merrick Garland, ironically, everyone screamed his name for four years, uh, to actually do anything about it. And you're right, there is no accountability, but your know, Democrats, you know, with Speaker Pelosi, when she tweeted about, oh, Kevin McCarthy, do something about it. He's not going to. Republicans are going to, they're going to, they're going to take away uh, committee memberships or committee roles or leadership roles from the people that voted for the uh, infrastructure bill, which is frankly uh, better for Republicans than it is for Democrats. But Matt Gates is still in, still in office. Matt Gates is still doing what he does. Marjorie Taylor Greene is still in there. Uh, Paul Gosar is no problem. They're not going to do anything. And uh, we have these like octogenarian Democrats, and not to be ageist, but like they're just kind of being, I guess they're just content to let these things continue to happen. But it's putting their members in danger. You know, uh, AOC was up in Buffalo uh, a few a few weeks ago for to meet with the Starbucks workers. And, you know, we I've been covering that a lot with More Perfect Union. And they had to limit the number of workers who can meet with her because there's death threats. I'm sure everywhere she goes, there's death threats. You know, it's and Paul Gosar is t- continuing to goose it up, right? Like these things aren't just like, you know, like, like Napoleon uh, said, like these aren't, this is not just entertainment. Uh, they, they treat it like that, but like there are real world consequences, right? There are people, hundreds of people that stormed the Capitol. There are people who are calling Fred Upton, who's like a longtime Republican, certainly would not mistaken him for a liberal, you know, certainly would yeah. not mistaken him for anyone that I'd want to vote for getting death threats from uh, people on the far right. And until there's consequences, until anything happens to any of these people, uh, Democrats have to do it. Like nothing is going to stop. And you're right that we're reaching this threshold where, you know, maybe just voters don't matter to them because, you know, they're going to gerrymander their, 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 all their districts. You know, Joe Manchin knows that like he controls everything. What voters want doesn't matter. I mean, there's a report saying that it would cost more money for West Virginia to go with, uh, to continue with coal versus going to solar and renewable energy and Manchin just decided to do that he's trying to means test for the one of the five poor states of the country all these programs there's no accountability whether it's like being horrible as a leader in terms of policy or in terms of literally threatening to murder people and you know there's until someone does something about it it's only gonna get worse and honestly like does it if you're not gonna i remember they say like when parkland or when uh the shooting happened at the elementary school in connecticut and they weren't able to pass gun control it was kind of like well that's that uh, if yep. nothing happens with the Capitol insurrection or what happens with Gosar now or Gates, like what is the, like, is there ever any threshold? I mean, like I'm not someone who focuses that much on January 6th because there's so much that has to be done, but the fact that there hasn't been any sort of punishment at all uh, for it, you know, for the people, like you don't need a special committee to know that Paul Gosar and other people were goosing it. Maybe you're like on Twitter cheering it on. And until, if there's no consequences there, then like there won't be until, I don't know, like I think we have this idea of American exceptionalism where nothing terrible is going to happen. You know, like our, our republic will stand forever. But I mean, that's what happens to all empires before they fall. Of course. And, and yeah, I mean, but, but there are provisions. Go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. You know, when you made the point about Twitter, it's also a perfect storm because all this talk about cancel culture and everything else. If Twitter and free speech and freedom, which is the themes that are going around, it's all like coming together. And if Twitter does anything about the video, you know, there's going to be an outrage on the other side saying there's no more free speech. Look, it was just a joke this, that, and a third. So it's, 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 we're, we live in a very tough moment. Well, they did it to yeah. Donald Trump. Listen, if they could do to Donald Trump, but they had to wait until he was out of office to do so, they can definitely do it to Paul Gosar. I mean, this is, I, I think what, what really concerns me about this is, um, you know, institutions, they exist for a reason. I know that we're, uh, there's, there's a lot of anti-establishment energy out there, but that is partly because the institutions, if, if you want to go to classic liberalism, right? Liberalism depends on institutions. It's, it's why we support the government and not 
We're not all libertarians. But when the institutions are completely feckless and empty and, and essentially corrupt, I mean, that's what this is. When when Nancy Pelosi puts the burden on Kevin McCarthy, you're the Speaker of the House for about five more minutes. Do you want to do something? You actually have the ability to do something. But we as a movement, I want to like take this one step further. I also feel like we as a movement need to target those people who have who control the purse strings, who control, uh, 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 have levers of power that they can control in Congress. I mean, there are absolutely things that both Senator Schumer and Nancy Pelosi can do to hold both Republicans and Democrats accountable, whether it's censoring them. or I mean, that doesn't come from Kevin McCarthy. It comes from, from Nancy Pelosi. She, you know, she can make a big stink about this to expel him so that it doesn't happen again. She could, you know, make a, there's documented evidence at this point, hearing or no hearing, that there are members of Congress, sitting members of Congress, who were part of, of the structure that was to storm the Capitol to kill the vice president. This is not, this is like, this is like a sci-fi movie where we're like all headed towards the apocalypse and where's the, where the, where the news people on screen being like, what is going on? And meanwhile, you know, Nancy Pelosi's just like, it's okay, they storm my my office. Shame is not working. Shame is not working. So how do we, on our side, push them in power? Because maybe that's the shame that works. I don't know. But but the bottom line is it's not whatever we're doing is not working. I don't I don't know like how you if their lives being put on the line is not like gonna make it work. I, I don't know, like, what does. I mean, we're, we're coming off, you know, now we got Abigail Spanberg and all these people, uh, you know, saying that they, you know, they, they got to be moderates. They, they got to stop being so woke. They got to stop doing, you know, anything that's of, of you know, uh, any consequence, right? And so, like, now Democrats are what, they're going to take their foot off the gas even more. And so, like, that's where we are. Where it's like the, the idea is like, well, we'll appeal to these people by doing literally nothing and showing absolute no backbone. Um, I want to play a, a real quick, I mean, <laughs> just to continue this, <laughs> this there's so much to, to work with here. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, let's play this clip, her, her latest antics. Just um, Democrats, though, who are targeted, the 13 Republicans who voted mm. for the infrastructure bill, we should point out this really disturbing voicemail, um, which was shared with CNN by Congressman Fred Upton. So if we don't play it, I will just say the caller says, quote, I hope you die. I hope everybody in your bleeping family dies. He did respond. I just want to play what he had to say. It's a real step back. Thank goodness it wasn't a constituent. Uh, but I have a colleague, as you know, that put out the phone numbers of the 13 of us that voted that way. Be glad to defend that vote. Now, he did point out, um, he's referring there to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who shared the phone numbers of all 13 Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill. John, as we look at this, I think it's clear there's no real acknowledgement of the danger here, right? That we've been, we've seen mm -hmm. this growing for some time. Mm -hmm. But the fact that this has become, in some circles, acceptable, and we keep looking at it and we keep, as, as Jim says, you know, we keep wondering where's the bottom? It's gotten so low. What is it going to take? I mean, is it, is it going to take someone acting on these horrific threats? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so she's basically echoed everything we said, but it did take someone dying. Someone died in, in, in the insurrection. I mean, who, if that's not a coup, then what's a coup? 
Well, you I mean, know, think, uh, some kids it's, did it's, follow. It's going to be some sensational again. To, it's going to take some sensational again to happen for for anything to go down. Like the the general the, the strikes that happened last year will happen after people seen Joy Floyd died on camera, and unfortunately, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I just feel, but even though the the, the thing that's that that that's really makes you makes I feel myself and people feel hopeless is that even if we do take to the streets, will that change anything? It feels like it's not doing like anything. A, a, right. insula, a wall between them and us. They have they don't care. It doesn't even affect them in any type of way. So it's, it's, I mean, it's the, the, the crazy part about all this is when you see the fall of a, of of any you know whether it's a a, a monarchy or a republic or whatever. There is that storming of the gates, except they're the ones storming their gates. This is what's going on. And this is what it's mind boggling to me because, you know, it should a movement like the George Floyd movement, the Women's March, which at that time was the largest march in history until the George Floyd protests. um, I mean, this is this is the stuff that usually moves policy, usually moves the, the, you know, union leaders and Democrats to align. But Everyone's frozen um, and conditioned and afraid of their own shadows when they have all, like, literally, they have the power right now to do some bold things. Um, and, and, and you know, oh, it's, it's Joe Manchin's fault. That's it. Well, you know, uh, a few kids did follow Kirsten Sinema in the bathroom to ask about, uh, as she ran away with them for hours, to ask about infrastructure and, and immigration and voting rights. And so, you know, it, both sides do it. But, um, you know, yeah, I, but I they think, didn't do anything. I mean, it's a I joke. Mean, it, yeah, like, I know, what I'm yeah. saying is like, yeah, the, the, the thing is like, there is this element of, like I say, American exceptionalism. And I think that, you know, I, honestly, I do think like the media buys into it, even though they're showing some concern here, you know, like, Nothing in this country has gotten better in the last 40, 50 years. Like we have what we have some people have internet, you know, you can order things online and a drone will drop it to you, but no infrastructure, no, no, no social service. Nothing has actually gotten tangibly better. And I think that like, there's a lot of horrible people on the far right that are racist and, you know, would prefer an autocracy and are the absolute worst. But I think like there is this exhaustion amongst everyone uh, yeah. that, you know, nothing is getting better. And, you know, I talk with like truck drivers and I'll talk with all the people who are on, on the on the line at John Deere, like none of like half of them are Democrats. I mean, honestly, like I'm getting yeah. to the point where like I don't know how much of a Democrat I am, given how useless they are. But you know, certainly they're on the other side of the political aisle. Right. Like they are certainly, um, you know, not not voting for uh, folks that uh, I vote for. But there's this element of people are just exhausted because they're nothing is getting better. No one's getting making more money. No one's getting help. And you know, that's not the only reason why people storm the gates. I mean, they're, they're addled on QAnon and insane things like that. But at some point, you know, these people are making threats. These, uh, you know, nothing's getting better. Like, I don't know when, you know, why would anyone, why would this Republican continue to stand? You know, like, I guess it has a lot of weapons. It can mow down a lot of people. But uh, I don't know what would, I guess the only thing that I think would keep America going is like the fact we have the big military that could like mow people down. And we're 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 just going to become a far 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 more right. I mean, we're already a right wing, and we vacillate between you know right wing and center right. Let's just be very clear. But yeah. I think we're moving in the direction of being far right and and extreme <laughs> authoritarian right. <laughs> I think it's worth noting also that the reason Paul Gosar feels like he can do this, the reason why you know Jim Jordan and Matt Gates, only people say the things they say, is like there's no accountability because they don't have to run against anyone for office. You know, the gerrymandering that's happening, it's happening in Texas. You know, we're seeing like these seats that were competitive within a few points. There's none left going to Congress next year based on the gerrymanders. There's no competitive seats in the state legislature anymore. 
North Carolina just passed an 11 to 3 gerrymander for Congress. Yep. Um, yep. And, and Democrats, because they don't want to make anything better, they continue to lose rural votes. But these people are just encouraged to continue being their most insane selves because they will have no accountability. And once again, Democrats uh, are not necessarily saying, hey, be awful and insane. But by not allowing democracy to continue, by just saying, yeah, sure, gerrymander away, do whatever you want to do. They are, in a sense, enabling, uh, very much enabling the people who are putting these attacks on them, putting the hits out for them, uh, you know, who are making life hell. And so all this comes together. I want to play this clip on that note because. Again, I want to get down to the power and like how we can target those who control, who do have the ability to control. I mean, it's one thing to, to, to go after Joe Manchin, but Joe Manchin's safe. Someone like a Nancy Pelosi, she feels the heat when she needs to feel the heat, and, and Senator Schumer as well. So let's play this clip um, about uh, <laughs> the, the Democrats' response to all this, whose fault it is, of course. Switch to the Democrats and Axios digging into a new term floating around Capitol Hill used by some moderate Dems. What's behind this rebranding? Tell us about it. Yeah, you saw Connor Lamb, uh, who's a candidate uh, running as a moderate. Uh, you saw uh, a congresswoman here in Virginia use this term normal Democrat. I'm a normal Democrat. We're hearing from uh, several moderate Democrats that they plan in swing districts to use that term in ads, which I think they're trying to say, listen, we're not going to offend you. Like We're with the parents as well. Uh, we're not necessarily part of uh, of the far left. Uh, but when you say normal, you're comparing it against what other kind of Democrat is. He, are they saying that progressives are abnormal? Uh, and I think that is a concern that you have among some Democrats, that, that, that the fight that sort of started right around the Yunkin race is only going to grow uh, more intense. You know, you've got the mansion wing of the party, which is still small, but obviously formidable because you have such a narrow uh, Senate. You have these centrist Democrats. You have this Mark Penn. uh, uh, Oh, Mark Penn. Mark Penn. Normal Democrats. Um, You know, that might work for some ads if they've got all the money and they've got all the, you know, they don't want to be challenged by by the left. And obviously the media is very uh, centralized and and is able to to regurgitate these points, Axios and Politico. it might actually hurt progressives, but progressives also have to know who their enemy is too. Like, is it each other and uh, canceling everyone out, out, or is it really making it very clear who we as progressives are, which in my opinion is we're here for working people. And like the normal Democrats want to represent, they're Wall Street. They're not normal, they're Wall Street. If you think Wall Street's normal, then what are you? Um, but I, I, I don't, we don't, I don't know what happened, but I just feel like we're, we're everywhere. We're all over the place. We don't know what our identity is anymore when we were very clear about it a couple of years ago. Um, and, and maybe that's just cause there's more, more voices, uh, you know, running now or, or not, but Napoleon, I'll go to you first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I, 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 that type of thing is, it's, it's, it's more like, um, not, not going to the core of the problems and just changing labels and playing with words and things like that. So I think they're missing the point once again. And another thing it makes me feel like if the progressives are like, like they said, if there's the normal and the progressives are not normal, is that, is that an admission that they're, they're no longer left because the progressives is the left part of the democratic party. So if they're calling themselves normal, so what does that mean? Like it's, it's kind of an admission that you guys are no longer for the people, so to speak. And like I said, I I think all these rebranding games, maybe it could work. I wonder, but I guess we consume a different type of news and different type of information. I'm I'm wondering who's going to buy this? You know, like normal Democrats, 
where where does like it, it's just it's just wordplay at this point. It's it's, it's nothing for the people. It's n- nothing like no policy change or anything like that. It's just more status quo. They're, they're, right now, the the, the last uh, little mini election wasn't looking good for them. So I don't know if changing a term is is really going to get to the crux of the the problem. But as part of this, Jordan, um, to put the progressives on defense, because sometimes I think they throw these things out to bait progressives and make them out to be even more, you know, quote unquote, unhinged as, as they like to portray us. It's, it's, to me, normal is like, we're safe. It's like the Joe Biden thing. And right. the progressives are out of their minds. They just can't slip people out and talking about identity and like, they want it all. You know, to be honest, like given the just how terribly democrats the brand is in so many places um because a lot of people tell me in, in rural areas like it's not that people love republicans i mean they may love yeah. the MAGA thing but it's not like people love anyone with an r next to the name they just hate democrats right now and if you want to be a normal democrat amongst people who hate democrats congratulations go for it you know i'm happy to that we can differentiate ourselves and say look we're not those normal like you know wall street uh guys we're, we're not those people who you know abigail spanberger who's like blaming wokeness blaming the left blaming defund the police blaming uh, you know, Biden wanting to be FDR, like, yeah, FDR is pretty popular. Uh, she, like her, all of her, uh, all of her contributors are hedge funds. They're all hedge funds or, or weapons makers. You know, this is a CIA agent. And so like, if she wants to be the normal Democrat, like, yeah, the reason why she doesn't do well is because people don't like Democrats. And so congratulations, be a normal Democrat. Connor Lamb is going to get stomped on in his, in his primary because, you know, he's not going to picket lines. He's not going to, you know, the teachers in Scranton. He's, you know, he, he's, uh, you know, looks like a, someone said he looks like a Lego doll, a Lego character uh, with his haircut. Um, he can't say that in Pennsylvania. I mean, normal Democrats in Pennsylvania. It's one thing if you're saying that, like, and you're like a Wall Street Democrat, or you're like yeah. Carol Maloney's district. Okay, cool. Sure. Like, maybe that works in Carol Maloney's yeah. district. But it's not going to work in Scranton, PA. Yeah, if the idea is to rebrand Democrats, saying you're a normal Democrat isn't super helpful. Uh, you know, like, so congratulations, must- have that. N- nothing about what we're going through is normal anyways. So I, I, I just don't feel like it's a co- it's, it's compelling. Like nothing is normal. The climate crisis is normal. The polarization of the people is no- not normal. The pandemic's not normal. So if you're going to run as I'm the normal, like you're not offering, you're not giving somebody any, anything compelling to want to, to wanna vote for you or to want to like uh, adhere to the platform that you're, you're, you're trying, uh, the agenda that you have for the country. Nor- what's normal? Like the, the world is like upside down right now. And, and, and the Republicans, call, yeah. they're really good at saying that, you know, we're, we're, they're radical in the way they talk and the way they do things. It's very extreme, very radical. And I, and I think, you know, it's kind of, it makes me think about Harvey K. Like, I, I don't know if that position, may, maybe there's, there's, there's a silent majority, but I'm not sure if that position is going to be compelling anymore, like going forward. I mean, look, Terry McAuliffe used to be governor, right? He was governor up until uh, 2017. He was trying to basically return to normal. He was trying to say, look, we're going you know, to go back to, uh, I mean, Ralph Northam was governor there. He was trying to say, look, we're going to be normal. I'm going to be normal. going to be normal. Like, that's what Abigail Spanberger said. Oh, we don't want, people didn't want him to be FDR. But like, nothing's, I mean, I guess people have, some people have better savings now because they were, you know, stuck at home for all that time. Uh, couldn't go anywhere. But like, no one's looking really for normal now. And that's yeah. the problem. You know, like normal, if things, if people are getting so radicalized, especially on the right, because normal, they don't like, and on the left, people are getting agitated because normal is bad. Like, who are you pitching to? Like, the, yeah. the problem is a lot of politicians, they only talk to people who want things to stay the same. 
and that's you know lobbyists, people who who have power, who have money, people who the status quo benefits. So like, yeah, sure, you talk to people and say, yeah, I want it to be normal. That's because you're rich, you know. Like, sure, I'd want things to stay normal if I was rich and wealthy and powerful, but uh, the majority of voters are not like that. And so like, yeah, his his pitch is some. I his pitch is as much to I think donors and you know fundraisers as anyone else. Well, and 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 just to you know finish this point off. I think there's been a misdiagnosis, I've said this before, about how Joe Biden won. Yes, he ran on being like a tempered, uh, you know, statesman in a time of crisis and, you know, your your, your grandfather's coming in and he's going to save the day. But let's be very real. That margin of victory was smaller than the margin of victory that Donald Trump had over Hillary Clinton. So this wasn't something that was massively popular. It was a, you know, a couple of areas where they invested a little bit more and maybe actually opened up an effing office in those states where Hillary Clinton didn't. And guess what? He still barely squeaked by. He was one mistake away from losing that election. Georgia and Arizona are the two states with two Democratic governor, uh, sorry, senators and 91. That's where grassroots dem- uh, progressives have been running and working for like a decade plus. Yes. And, and I mean, listen, 2006, I was working in Arizona and it, we turned it blue. And then afterwards, you know, thank you, President Obama. He took the Democratic governor, uh, put her in charge of Homeland Security and then delivered uh, Arizona, you know, to the right wing. I mean, they, they're not thinking strategically and they think that like, oh, it's because of this message. It's like, no, it's not about the message. I am. A, I work in messaging. Let me tell you something. It's not about the message. If you don't have people on the ground. Secret to politics. My mom ran for, my mom was in office um, and she was in a three to one Republican area and she was a Democrat, a local outside of Buffalo, which we're going to go to in a second. Um, three to one Republican area. And she won that district by 70, 80 points every year. And people said, how did she do it? And she would just go, I talked to them. Literally, that was it. Like people who had like nothing in common with her. She just knocked on the door and sat down and talked to them. Secret to politics. Talk to your neighbors. And the Democrats don't do that because Mark Penn makes millions of dollars a year doing these polls and and ads and 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 that's why you know if let me tell you if we were if we had operations in every single county the way I mean that's why unions are so powerful too if you had or it used to be so powerful if you had operations in every single county in this country the way it used to be I don't think we would be in the situation at all at all well and and, and you could think about the, the right wing the way they they talk and they use the churches too and and even the, the black churches from, from the democrat side we have to have some presence there too and, and one more point about biden he didn't run as the guy that was the most um level-headed but look how fast people lost lost confidence in biden it hasn't even been a year it's already gone and it's, mm-hmm. it's not really it's not trending well i don't know if he's going to get gain it back at some point but it's just not looking good like, I think people need somebody that 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 looks like they're about business. But yeah, I think we're going into. I mean, I, I hate to say that at times, but it's it's turning it's turning authoritarian um, pretty fast. Uh, let's 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 end on an up, up note. Just a couple couple minutes on this one. But uh, I know Jordan, you've been doing this work um, around the organizing in different parts of the country. But this one is is near and dear to my heart because I'm from Buffalo and I'm just, it's just really encouraging to see this kind of uh, movement building happening in Buffalo and, and as the Indy Walton story, uh, <laughs> which we've talked about on the show. All right. So uh, do we have a clip of this or just a story about, about Starbucks? Starbucks workers are organizing in the Buffalo area. Let's play that clip. In the effort to form a union at some local Starbucks is reaching a critical phase. Ballots scheduled to be mailed tomorrow. And now workers at three more stores are asking for a union vote. 
News Force, Chris Ravatis has the latest details tonight. Chris? Hey, Don. Today, workers at three more Starbucks locations asked the National Labor Relations Board to let them vote on forming a union. This happened on the eve. Ballots are scheduled to be mailed out to workers at three other locations. And that is something Starbucks is still trying to delay tonight. Our campaign has only gained momentum um, and will continue to grow. That campaign is nearing its climax Tuesday. Workers at locations in Amherst, Cheektowaga, and Depew have filed to hold a union vote. At the same time, workers at three other locations in Buffalo, another one in Cheektowaga, and Hamburg are preparing to hold a vote of their own. Those <coughs> ballots are scheduled to be mailed out by the end of the day Wednesday, with voting lasting nearly a month. It is the biggest, in my opinion, most public anti-union campaign that we've probably ever seen. Um, they can't possibly believe that their actions are being perceived in any other way. Starbucks has claimed it is not anti-union, but the company has filed a late request to delay the vote at the three initial locations. It's asking the NLRB not to mail out the ballots Wednesday as they appeal a decision made last month by the board's regional office. That ruling limited the union vote to just three locations, which could become the first unionized Starbucks in the U.S. Starbucks is requesting a region-wide vote at all 20. And a spokesperson for the company said in a statement, quote, today's announcement that partners in three additional Buffalo stores are filing to vote underscores our position that partners throughout the market should have a voice in this important decision. Members of the group Starbucks Workers United believe Starbucks' attempt to put the vote on hold won't work. We're incredibly confident the three stores that are ready to vote um, have only gotten stronger and gained momentum throughout all of this. So it's almost a little bit laughable. If it wasn't so high stakes, I think it would be laughable. As it's currently set up, the first round of voting would only involve those three locations. Pro-union workers hope ballots could be mailed out to employees at the next three stores in the next couple of weeks. Okay. So, so before we get to the details here, um, one thing that I find remarkable about this is keep in mind, Starbucks is, has, has done stuff like we have to acknowledge it, but I, I think this is remarkable actually to show how, how much we need a strong labor movement. You know, Starbucks offers $15 minimum wage. They, um, uh, they provide, uh, I, I, I believe they provide healthcare to workers, if I'm correct, Jordan. Um, well done, yeah. And then they also uh, pay for college in certain scenarios, right? That is like so not the norm <laughs> from any industry in the U.S. And yet, there is organized labor happening right now. In um, people are organizing to unionize, and I think that's remarkable. Um, Jordan, I know you've been covering this. So, do, do you know what motivated them? What was what are the, what are the reasons behind uh, their organizing? You know, what's remarkable is how young everyone is, you know, that most people, you know, the, the woman actually was speaking on uh, in that video, Michelle Eisen has been there like nine or 10 years. And she is like, by far the longest vet involved, you know, she's kind of become like the leader and because she's willing to stand up to, you know, and very vocally uh, in the face of uh, union busting and executives that bring in. And I think that like, I, I think it was a, a mix of being young and idealistic and not having been in so many jobs that you just been like, feel like you've been trapped and, you know, you just got to get through. So I think there's an element of that. I think, you know, a lot of them, they, they, what's really interesting is when we, I've been following this from the beginning and a lot of it was like, they wanted a voice, you know, more than like, mm -hmm. Oh, I hate the hours. I hate Starbucks. I hate, you know, there was things like they didn't like, you know, obviously like the ships they don't like, they don't like being on call. Like there's a lot of things that they didn't love, but it was like them feeling like, well, you say that we're partners prove it, you know? And so it, it was, 
again, like they they've become disaffected, uh, you know, and, and dis- disenfranchised in a lot of ways because of the union busting campaign. Like I think they've Starbucks, and well, I'm sure we'll see the Howard Schultz thing in a second. Uh, you know, they've been bringing in like every store has like three or four extra managers. You know, they've been moving around mm-hmm. employees so that uh, they can build up the numbers at stores that have filed for elections, so they can you know uh, get people get people you know anti union workers in there. They have been. Uh, having this place, these places have been now filled to the gills with extra workers to the point where like COVID starts going around because it's been overstaffed. Oh my God. And so honestly, the union busting campaign has made the conditions at these Starbucks places so much worse. Like, these people are being harassed. So they're not allowed to talk like behind the, you know, there's no like break room, but they're not allowed to talk about union stuff or behind, or, you know, if they have like all these managers there, they can't really talk about union stuff. They can't talk about other things in stores. So um, the fact that the union busting has made a union even more important. It's 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 fascinating. Let's let's put these comments up um, from Howard Schultz, the founder of of Starbucks. I think what's really fascinating around this is that um, they're kind of showing their cards. If they're supposed to be this worker friendly company, and that's how they build themselves. I mean, I have I have dear friends of mine who are who are much older, um, who you know through divorces had to go work at Starbucks to have health care for their children, and and that was where they chose to go. Hang on, I'm going to read this. So can you scroll back up? Um, so uh, former Starbucks CEO and founder uh, made comments about. The Holocaust at a meeting with employees in Buffalo that left many of them mystified a few days before ballots go out in the union election. This is Noam Shelber. Uh, quote, Schultz noted that only a small portion of prisoners in German concentration camps received blankets, but often shared them with fellow prisoners. So much of the story is threaded into what we have tried to do at Starbucks. Uh, that's according to the transcript. Okay, can we zoom in on that a little bit, that one? All right. So uh, (laughs) since we have audio here, um, many years ago, I took a trip to Israel and I met this very wise, pious religious man. He taught me many lessons, not about religion, but about life, about morality, about honor. I will tell you two stories, two experiences I had with him. I hope it resonates with you. I'm Jewish, but this isn't about being Jewish. Not at all. It's about humanity. The first story is he says to me that when people in Germany and in Poland were sent to concentration camps, they were thrown into rail cars. And sometimes the journey was eight hours, 10 hours, 15 hours, no light, no water, no food. When they arrived at the camps, the rail cars were slammed open. You could hear the metal door just uh, just right against the cold weather. Men were uh, separated from women, and women were separated from children. And one person for every six was given a blanket, one blanket for every six people. And the person who got the blanket had to decide what to do with this blanket that I had for myself. And not everyone, but most people, most people shared this blanket with five other people. And the rabbi, rabbi says to me, take a blanket and go share it with five other people. And so much of that story is threaded. And to what we have tried to do at Starbucks is share our blanket. Um, what? Sorry, it's, what's <laughs> remarkable is that this is a man with crazy. $5 billion. This man is how, worth how $5 many billion. $5 billion telling people not to work together to create a, a, you know, a union that allow people to share the wealth. Um, I got to say, I got to say, you, like, you, you know. You should feel lucky that you get one fifth of a blanket, basically. Yeah. It's just, yeah. yeah. Literally. Literally. Like, you should yeah. be happy. Clean air? This country is all about, like, people not knowing, like, you could actually get more. Like, it's possible. It's, it's, it, it happens other places and things like that. But you don't even know that it's, it, it's an option. 
So, so they they play on that, and then that that meta that metaphor with the blankets is exactly what that is. It's just like there's only one blanket, guys. What are we gonna do? And he's so out of touch. This is what really gets me. He's so out of touch. It's like when he ran for president that he thinks that's okay to say. That he thinks that people don't recognize the fact that they're the largest coffee, you know, one of the largest companies that serves, uh, you know, fast food. I guess you'd call it uh, in the world. The fact that he you know, is so rich he could run for president. And he has the nerve in this climate, in this economic climate, like how out of touch with humanity that you claim to know so much about through this one rabbi you spoke to in Israel, how out of touch are you? I got to send a personal note, really bad for the Jews. Um, just, <laughs> just, you know, like uh, there's so many radical Jewish social uh, socialists that were that organized, especially in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And it feels yes. like Come on, don't bring that into this. Also, wait, does that mean he's a Nazi? I mean, let's just play this whole metaphor out. Like, mm. he's the one giving the blanket. Does that mean all of your workers are in a concentration? What the hell? <laughs> well, I did pack it <laughs> like you should deep be happy that I'm deciding to share this blanket with you. And I'm the decider, by the way. So you guys can't have more leverage over me. I, I hold the blanket. Let's let's make it sure that I'm the owner. So I do what I want. And you guys should be happy with what I divvy up to you guys. It's it's, as, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. These people see that they see themselves like these aspirational, like young and plucky. They see themselves as these like young and plucky, you know, uh, go getters, and not like they are the overlords. They are the the they are. He doesn't realize he's the Nazi in the situation. He is it's like that uh, famous Michelin Web sketch. He said, "Are we the baddies?" Like he doesn't realize he's the baddie yet. Yes. As he's literally like if the metaphor he's using is is the workers are headed to their deaths. To yep. concentration camps and 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 like what are you what what is going? I, I wonder can't. If he t- I wonder if he told them the work will set them free. <laughs> you, you know, you know what it is. I, I'm with not these laughing. Companies? I'm just in shock. No, you know what it is with these companies. Every time they they they're in trouble or they they don't want to give more, they tell people to buckle down. And then that that's the same when you get a job. They're always like, we got we got to get it together. They give you like a little bit of a pep talk. No. You need to pay me and give me what I'm, I deserve. If your company goes down, it's not my problem. It's yours. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's like it, it's yeah. like this type of sacrifice they're asking for people. What is the sacrifice? Like, be fair with people. Let people leverage, their, their, have their stake in the company. But it's a control thing once again. I A lot of unions and companies, like, they, they took big concessions in 2008-2009 when the you know economic crisis hit and they never got that back in contracts going forward that's at the standard and you know uh, there's more billionaires than ever and so literally people were sacrificing for their companies to keep their jobs but nothing has gotten returned don't you guys know that um it's all about the individual and the individual needs to sacrifice and by the way when they sacrifice it's actually part of a collective because you're sharing your blanket so like we're all about individualism until we have to make you work with other people but then we don't want you to work too much with other people because then that would mean you might ask for your worth and you know that's how it works right. it's just a move and target move and target all right guys thank you so much for commiserating um i feel like this was a a venting session uh but i'm glad that we could at least make light of you know howard Sch- whatever schultz's uh <laughs> insanity and sociopathy um good luck to all the buffalo workers we'll be watching yes jordan zacharin napoleon the legend thank you for joining thank you for everybody for watching and as always stay in solidarity the no mickey show we
flash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. Thank <laughs> you.